Zanny is about to release an album called An Accurate History of Electronic Dance Music in March of 2023, and we'll be having a chat with them very soon regarding that album as well as feminism that they've been studying. But before we do that, I want to reissue a chat that we had with them back in 2019. To give you a background of who they are as an artist, as a person, ahead of that fuller chat about the new album in coming episodes. G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch, the producer and host of Great to Have Your Company, a very special guest for the entirety of this episode this time round. Zani Kolak is a multi-talented human of various musical projects, from Stand By Your Woman that turns the lights on female representation in backup groups, to musical director and composer of Zenides, the musical about the life of the letter-turning personality from the Wheel of Fortune. Kolak attended Americana Fest, where they took fiddle lessons with Buddy Spiker and can be heard on Paul Kelly's latest, Nature, and with violin as main instrument plus vocals in the Twox duo for over a decade. Zani has also lent their sound to Tim Rogers, My Friend the Chocolate Cake, 360 and Claire Bowditch recordings. Many fans of their live shows, having been asking when recordings of their solo looped music would be released, it's now out, called Three a release of improvised original music recorded at Rolling Stock Recording Rooms with engineer Miles Mumford. Here, recorded in Melbourne on a Saturday afternoon in June, outside Steam Junkies in Brunswick, John and Zani Kolak caught up for an extended chat. Zani, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In your neck of the woods here in in Melbourne, Mm -hmm. uh, Brunswick, Victoria, (laughs) you're just on the eve of releasing some vinyl, and that gets me very excited <laughs> because of the kind of music you do, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But the release is called Three, mm-hmm. which means you've had one and two. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a bit first. Yep. And I want to talk about that time where you're playing the Irish fiddle. I was seven and I began playing violin. And as well as learning the classical violin stuff, I have very creative parents. My mum and dad aren't musicians, but they're graphic designers, visual artists, and they like to think outside the square. So they would always kind of suggest that I go and try playing some other types of music. So as I wasn't always just playing classical violin, they were trying to explore all the things a violin could do. And they found me an Irish fiddle teacher and they used to take me to the Geelong Celtic Festival. And I remember seeing Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill, a duo. So Martin Hayes is an Irish fiddle player and Dennis Cahill is an American guitarist. And together they just make the most beautiful music and they play 28-minute long medleys of Irish fiddle music. And I remember being so inspired. I bought their CDs and tried to learn it note for note. And this is like at the age of 9 and 10. It's not something that I pursued after that time. I just did it for maybe four or five years. But there was definitely a kernel there, was there not? Yeah. I I think the thing I loved about it was the, the rhythmic pulse. So trying to play really fast was always something that I wanted to do and try to be in time. And it's something that I love a lot in my own practice is rhythm, groove. And I think that's where that stemmed from. What was happening, you said at the age of nine, mm-hmm. that was sort of coming on through. Mm-hmm. What other things, I guess, were taking up your time, your headspace? I did a lot of extracurricular activities. I was doing swimming. I was doing dance. I really loved ballet and jazz and tap. And 
I used to choreograph my own dances at dance school. So I loved tap as well for the rhythmic stuff there. I was also super into school. I loved school. So I loved going home and doing all the homework stuff. I also really loved studying things like Japanese. So I was learning a lot of Japanese at the time too. So yeah, I was a pretty busy kid. How was your math at the time? I was all right at maths, actually. I remember winning a lot of the timetables competitions, you know, where you have to say it the quickest. And I loved doing fractions for some reason. Right. I just loved fractions. <laughs> Did that later grow into time signatures? Um, I haven't been a massive fan of, like, irregular time signatures. I did do a bit of it at uni, actually. Like, it was something that violinists find quite accessible, I think, because we do a lot of reading music. Mm. So when I went to uni to do jazz, irregular time signatures did become a thing. But I did drop maths when I came to VCE when I was doing year 11 and 12. So Mm. even though I had a bit of an affinity for maths, I didn't pursue it. We are mentioning going back to the creative household, I guess, that was Mm -hmm. there at that nine younger year. What were they doing at the time that may or may not have influenced your process of becoming a musician, composer? Well, I think for a long time I would think very literally. And so mum was always there to help me think more laterally. She was doing a lot of different stuff. So while I was growing up, she would take my sister and I to... She was studying at TAFE doing visual art and sculpture. So we'd be there sitting watching her. She'd bring home life drawings and we'd try to copy her and get out charcoal. And I wasn't a particularly good artist. My sister is, but I wasn't. But I still loved it. And then she was doing kind of uh, children's book writing and playwriting. So she was always trying new things and thinking outside the square again. So I think her main influence was just always going, well, what about if you thought about it like this? Try this. And she'd always challenge me. I would never have thought of it. Whatever she came up with, I I would never have thought of it. Still a rock today for that kind of influence? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, that can be difficult sometimes. Like when you get a lot of different opinions on your music, it can make you really confused as to what you wanted. But I can actually say now with where I'm at with my music it feels like I've had to go through this big journey of trying all this other stuff and really all along all I needed to do was do the thing that comes very naturally. When was and who gave you your first violin? So I went to a school called Penbank which is a little independent school in Muraduck which is down on the Mornington Peninsula and a lot of people don't know what it is. We call our teachers by their first names, a bit alternative like that. It was a very small school, there was probably like 130 kids in the whole school. This is primary school. So they had a really amazing music program. The principal of the school was a pianist and she would start our morning meetings with sing-along so we'd always have music very much in our lives we'd do big plays um, you called them meetings yeah they called meetings they weren't called assembly it was called meeting (laughs) the way that they operated instrumental music programs at Penbank was that if you started learning you'd get a violin the school would give you your first violin and then you know mum and dad would pay for the lessons and then at the end of primary school you could take the violin with you so I had you know very small beginner violins and yeah it wasn't until um, maybe year seven or eight where I actually went and bought my first real violin 
But the first one, yeah, the, the absolute tiny one. first one, yep. was through the, the school. school's active engagement yep. with your development at that level. That's right. So when you were looking at the entry papers for university, mm-hmm. what was jumping out at you? I first just will say that my mum and dad were so active in supporting me with music. So that was a big thing that I know a lot of like kids don't have. They don't have... A lot of people don't consider music as a worthwhile kind of pursuit, you know, at an early level. But my mum and dad were really supportive with it. So I went to the first open days for uni when I was in year nine. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to go to VCA. And at VCA, the thing that really made me want to go there was that their jazz program wasn't actually called jazz per se. It was called improvisation. So they would explore lots of different improvised musics, not just jazz. And that really interested me because compared to Whopper over in Perth, it was jazz. Monash was predominantly jazz. Box Hill was jazz. So VCA really made me want to kind of go there. So in year nine, year 10, year 11, year 12, I went every year to open day, asked heaps of questions and just loved the feel of the place. Who was your tribe when you first arrived? Was there someone or people that sort of stuck out at the college that you wanted to be part of? Particularly musically, I'm thinking. At VCA, it's super competitive. So they only let in a very small group of people. So in my year level, there was only 30 or so of us. Right. So we were all the one tribe, really. We, In that first year especially, we all bonded because like, there was only 30 of us. We all made friends. We all went out all the time. I mean, there were little subgroups, but I don't feel like I necessarily had a specific tribe the other thing that was really interesting is that there was probably half mature age students half straight out of school leavers I was still 17 I hadn't even turned 18 yet eclectic mix of people but everyone there played a big part in my development and vice versa I think we all participate in each other's lives in some way was there anyone in that 30 that stands out well I think that my biggest memory or biggest important thing was this drummer, Manny Kachias. So Manny Kachias, I didn't really know him very well, but he went to Eltham High School, which is Blackburn High School where I went to and Eltham High School, they were kind of rivals in the music scene. And I didn't really know Manny very well, but then we kind of got in touch because he had found out he'd gotten into VCA and so did I. And we were kind of calling each other and going, did you get in, did you get in? And we were all nervous and excited and we didn't know anyone else who was going there. So we only knew each other. Anyway, as we got to know other people, we still decided to hang out a bit and play together. And that's where my duo, the Twox, was actually born. So Manny and I would jam together, instrumentals only, and yeah, he'd write stuff, I'd write stuff, and that's where we started doing our first gigs. A combination of violin or or strings and drums. And drums, that's it. Kind of started exploring loop stations and effects pedals, so... When did you start doing that? At 18? No, that was a few years after. So Manny and I like were just playing in other sorts of groups for a little while, but then we started just doing the loop station and drums in probably third year of uni. So I was mainly using an acoustic violin for the first couple of years at uni. And then, yeah, I got a loop station. Manny and I started just mucking around with that. And it wasn't all fast stuff. It was just that it was groove. It was just um, rhythmic and tempo. And Manny would play with glasses and weird instruments. And, yeah, we did a lot of exploration. And we had a really 
great kind of musical relationship. When did the looping come? What is the looping story that you're going to pick up on? I think it's interesting how many violinists and string players, cellists, go into looping. And my theory, (laughs) well, the reason that I went into it, the thing is that the loop station came first. I was hanging out up in Castlemaine with my violin maker. Oh, Paul because Davies. we all have a violin maker. <laughs> He's not mine, but he made my violins. And, Paul uh, Davies. Paul right. Davies, that's right. So not the ABC scientist. No, no, no. But could well be. But a scientist of a kind, yeah. Yes. So he's in, he's based in Melbourne now, but then he was based in Castlemaine. And I used to go up and, you know, get things done to my instruments and hang out. And we'd, he's very creative as well. And we have very long chats just talking about instruments and music. Anyway, this particular time he was like, Zanny, you should try this loop station and I was like oh I don't know that I'd know how to use that anyway I plugged everything in and it was pretty shocking actually it was pretty bad but for some reason I was like this could be really cool so when I got back I bought one but the reason that I pursued it is that there's something that is a real struggle and was always a struggle for me at uni playing jazz and that is that the violin just struggles to cut above all other instruments so when you're playing with guitar drums and bass even if you're really loud and amplified it's still just got a thinner tone than every other instrument it's not like a saxophone which has a really wide fat beautiful rich tone violin has a beautiful rich tone but just like not against all those other instruments so the loop station provided me with a string orchestra to play with and that's where violin sounds the best with other strings like that's the thing that gets you you know when you hear strings and you're like oh my god strings it's because it's playing with other strings so the loop station was like a really cheap string orchestra for me to hire at gigs (laughs) this at the same time that you were working within the jazz field yeah so using a classical-ish instrument that's right yeah and saying i'm going to use this technology Mm. to then bring it back to the jazz yeah well to bring it back to improv because i never really did jazz music with the loop station like i kept that to the traditional thing but i did a little bit of jazz and then i knew that it wasn't necessarily for me And I still play jazz every now and again. And I do like, you know, dipping back into the Melbourne jazz scene every now and again. We're currently in conversation with Zanny, who I believe that's how you release your pop releases, is just under your name. Yeah, yeah, Zanny. I just decided to go off and try my own thing. And what I've put out are three incredibly different (laughs) offerings. Mm. Jerusalem is one and I knew next to nothing regarding this vegetable fruit Uh. thing (laughs) and then I had the pleasure of listening to uh, Chat 3 Looks 10 and Lee Sales seems to cook it the best. Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. So uh, (laughs) what's your connection with the vegetable slash fruit? I have no idea what it is. (laughs) I guess while I was exploring, like I I wanted these... um, these recordings that I put under my own name to explore really different stuff. So I knew I wanted to start with the Americana country thing and I went to Nashville and I came back and I made this first EP. 
then I wanted to explore my pop song writing and start to look at creative ways of curating an EP whether you put instrumental interludes and then I wanted to do a completely instrumental thing so I could step back and go okay where's my heart what do I want to do and from a public's point of view that could be somewhat confusing because it's under the same name but what you've done so smartly is gone it's all me this is all my sides and guess what there might be a few others coming through later yeah, free yeah. at the moment yeah let's go back to number one because okay. you mentioned Nashville and that you actually went to Nashville yeah what was the draw card of the Americana for you? Because it's very popular these mm. days. Mm. But the time that you were doing it, it would have still been becoming popular in Australia, I'm talking. Yeah. Well, when I got to Nashville, I actually noticed there's heaps of Australians that go over there and try to make it over there. So it was definitely not a new thing when I went there. Yeah, right. But I guess coming back to, you know, that thing that I was talking about, and it's so interesting to me because sometimes I have no idea what people think of the music that I make I'm like what does anyone even think but that thing of being in this jazz university improvisation university feeling like the violin doesn't really fit like how do I make it fit it's it's not doing what I want it to do where does the violin fit and then having done the twox for like eight nine years and that being a project that is very difficult to put in a category to describe to give it a genre and I was just finding it really frustrating doing all these different things that didn't have a place anywhere like I'd try to send it to contemporary classical people and they'd like it's too pop I'd try to send it to pop and they're like it's too world music try to send it to world music and they're like it's not world music enough so I didn't fit anywhere so then I thought okay I'm going to go and try and find where the violin fits perfectly so I decided Americana that's it and just note that I have avoided my whole life learning how to play The Devil Goes Down to Georgia because I always get asked to play it and I was like if I refuse to learn it I can't play it for anyone (laughs) so I still don't know this track but I went over to Nashville and decided to see how the violin fits in and I took my recordings and again they said it's too pop for Americana it's too uh, but it was so inspiring the amount of violinists I saw over there that were incredible they were using jazz harmony to play through these country tunes every violinist was incredible they're not out of tune playing crappy double stops they're in tune playing amazing double stops so it was really inspiring so I came back and decided to make an Americana record and for the first time it was played on stations like Twang or like on programs like Twang, um, the country music program on Triple R. It's played in, in Roots and all kind mm-hmm. of programs. It had a place. Mm. So they get excited about that. They see that you release a, a second release and go, well, what's this? Yeah. And then you're back to square one. Yeah, because I'm like, yeah, it was cool, but it's not. My big thing is how do I innovate? How do I keep trying something new? And doing this Americana record didn't feel like I was being true to myself. Mm. I'm still really proud of the songs that I put on there because I love songwriting. But was I giving anyone anything new? I don't know. So I thought, okay, I'll do my pop song. So this is where Jerusalem Artichoke came into it because I didn't want to write a whole bunch of songs that were just about love or losing someone or whatever. So... I decided to explore a few different things. So on that record, three of the tracks are about things that aren't to do with love necessarily. Mm. So Jerusalem Artichoke was just a 
day going to the fruit shop and bought some Jerusalem artichokes and the lady just was so confused as to why I was buying all these Jerusalem artichokes and she was asking me what are you going to do with these and I just thought it was so fascinating that the fruit shop lady is asking me what I'm going to do with this vegetable so I went home and wrote a song about them <laughs> and then made soup oh so it wasn't for a film clip it wasn't a juggle no, or anything well, else did you know I went to make a film clip about this song yeah. And Jerusalem artichokes weren't in season when I was doing the clip. So I couldn't include any Jerusalem artichokes. I don't remember seeing any in there. I I saw some uh, lovely, expressive ladies in there. Yep, there's lettuces, tomatoes, chocolate, spaghetti, Mm. no Jerusalem artichokes. So I'm trying to learn about this, and there's none in the film clip to educate me about it. No. How does one best cook or or eat this article that I've never experienced? It's kind of (laughs) like potatoes, I guess. So it's actually a sunflower. Um, it's the root of a sunflower. But yeah, you just peel it and then you can like roast them, then pulp them up, put them in a soup with a bit of potato as well. Three different leases, three different styles. But the one thing that connects all of them is you. And a load of violin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that violin is played through of you and what you wish to express. That's right. How come it's so diverse? Is there a lot going on? you need to work through. I think that like when we start talking about the third one, mm-hmm. a lot of this will make sense. But I don't know if you've ever felt this, but sometimes when something comes very naturally to you, you think, oh, well, I'm not working hard enough. Sometimes there's this assumption that as an artist, you have to suffer. <laughs> If there's no suffering, then are you a real artist, right? So, not saying that I've suffered, but that I've gone, well, I have to make something that it has to be difficult for it to be good. Mm -hmm. So, I have tried to shape a whole bunch of stuff or try to be a pop song singer or writer when I'm a violinist. Like, that's what I've spent my whole life doing. Playing violin, making stuff up. When we get to the third release, and we will get there, I'm sure that we will pick up those threads and it'll all make sense. Before we do that, though, Mm -hmm. which song did you work with Tim Rogers on his An Actor Repairs LP? Well, I played violin on quite a few of the tracks and then did BVs. So the ones where I'm playing mainly a lot of violin is Umpire's Boy Mm -hmm. or Umpire's Son, The Bug that intro that starts with the vocals and stuff so I just like kind of sprinkled stuff everywhere but really the magician behind that album is Shane O'Mara who was the engineer and producer of that record and I put all this stuff over it and when I listen to it I'm like oh my gosh he just picked the right bits and made it into something super incredible Shane's done a number of records with Tim now. Yep. You mentioned earlier you've known Mr. Rogers for quite a while-ish mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. What is behind the enigma that is Tim Rogers from a, a musician's point of view? What oh, is yeah, it like yeah, yeah. to work with him? What is he really like? I think that Tim has been incredibly generous and supportive of my career and my violin playing. He's always included me in projects that I really get a chance to do my thing. And I always feel very honoured when he asks me to come and play with him. Mm. He's an incredible entertainer. 
to see how he can like when he is on he is so on it's it's really quite something the first big kind of show that I did with him I was just doing a theatre show with him at Malt House and that's when I first met him and after that finished he invited me to come and play with you and I at Golden Plains and I had never done anything that huge and we walked down to the stage and there's like so many people there how many tens of thousands look I'm going to admit something my estimation of crowds is not a skill that I possess, so I don't park, know. Though. It was heaps of people, and it was UMI. So it it's a park that's UMI. They would have been in the top five on the bill. Absolutely, like it was night time. They were one of the headliners. Everyone was watching, and everyone was going nuts because it's UMI, and Tim loves to dish it out to people, you know, and get them all riled up. So I was, and he would hate me to say the word rock star. He hates being called rock star but it was such a rock star moment I was just like my god he's a legitimate rock star let's talk about collaborations lucky enough to be listening to a Miff Warhurst who now does ABC local radios in the afternoon now she was talking with someone that you collaborated on and the way they spoke about the way you are keen to collaborate before I mention the person and the collaboration with them let's talk to you about collaborations more generally okay is there a switch that needs to be turned on inside you or is it just an automate yes? Well, for a very long time, I decided to do no collaborating. So my career started collaboratively um, at uni when I started playing with a band called Martin Martini and the Bone Palace Orchestra. That was my first kind of propulsion into my career, essentially. And then I went on to play with my friend The Chocolate Cake and I was playing with lots of different people and had no time to refine my own thing so I didn't know who I was as a musician I didn't know what I wanted to pursue so I decided to quit everything Mm. and just focus on the twocks those collaborations Mm. were they a great education teaching point or were you just doing what you needed to do they were crucial they were so important I still think back to all those experiences because I'm hearing my friend the chocolate cake that was incredible because there's a band that had been together for Um, over 20 years when I joined Mm. having a band stay together for that long is quite a feat so yeah it was just it was so it was such a big learning curve we were touring all over Australia we were touring internationally I learned so much and they they let me do my thing too like when they heard how I played they were like okay Zanny do a solo here and improvise this and so I yeah I was always given a bit of freedom and when people learn to trust me with that I think that I can contribute better so talking about collaboration like when people collaborate with me the kind of more freedom I get I feel like the more successful the collaboration is when did the yes switch come back was there something where you went actually I can continue doing my stuff Mm. but I can also dip my toe in these waters I had kind of hit a point where I felt very, it was a really difficult time. I'd had a really tough year. A lot of things had gone wrong personally. It was a time when I decided maybe I would give up music <laughs> and I was going to go into sonography. <laughs> Remind me what sonography is. It's not when Ultrasound you... Ultrasound technician. Okay. It's not when you snuggle people. <laughs> just decided that I was going to go and do that and I started going back and trying to learn maths methods so I bought a textbook and I knew that I had to get these units done so I went I was fully like that's it 
I had tried so much to make something work and it wasn't working and I felt like a lot of the light had gone out in my career because I'd put all my eggs in one basket. It was kind of where I decided to do my own thing. I was like, what if I do my own project and I only had myself to kind of rely on to collaborate with other people or have to go out and work with others? You know, my relationship had fizzled out and that was really difficult. When I started feeling this again I I was empowered and working with other people meant that I was back in the scene like I was back talking to other musicians more because I'd been isolated I realized for maybe five years. Had you actually tied your music your life in music to the personal life? Yes yes but I don't know which died first. <laughs> yeah. It was very complicated and messy and everything was intertwined and I just couldn't... Really, when I look back on it, it was myself standing in the way. And that's often been the thing. When I look at something and I go, why isn't this happening? It's because I'm there in the way. <laughs> Now, is that in the way of the creative process, the musical output? Is that what we're talking? No, in the way of overcomplicating something that doesn't need to be complicated. Like when I got to recording three, like as I will get to. Yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) So you're saying you were going completely on a different field, but then you came back, a switch Mm -hmm. said, I need to do my thing, but also collaborate. Yes, yeah. Someone said to me, because at this point I was like, maybe I need to move to a different place. Maybe I need to go to New York. And when I went to Nashville, I was looking whether I should relocate to Nashville. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go somewhere else. Um, where should I go? And I was telling this person about this. And he said, you know what shits me about Melbourne musicians is all the good ones end up leaving. And then Melbourne loses another musician. And that made me feel, yeah, like this is my home. It's always been my home. It's my community. And it's an amazing scene for musicians. Why don't I try to do everything I possibly can by engaging with the community again? Mm. And now I think the most important thing to me is the, the community that I'm a part of. The switch came when I decided to actively seek collaborations, to be the one who asked someone to collaborate with me. And I guess like... I've got this weird thing in my brain that's like, no one's going to want to work with me. Why would anyone want to work with me? Which so is it wasn't ridiculous. an ego thing that I'm too good for them. It was the other way around. Yeah. Well, like I wanted to pursue my own thing, definitely. And that comes from a, I want to do it this way because I'm very controlling. Yeah. But I also was very scared starting this new thing of initiating collaboration because I didn't think that anyone would want to work with me unless I was paying them lots of money. <laughs> Get back to this yarn. So I was listening to Miff Warhurst. She was interviewing someone for the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. The guest had name-dropped how wonderful you were. Oh, that's nice. And other beautiful things. The person I'm speaking of is Geraldine Quinn. Mm-hmm. The show is Queen Bitch. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is a perfect segue because artists have a bit of insecurities sometimes. Like, we put it all out there. And Geraldine was posting on Facebook one day about needing musicians to work with on her show and the guy who recorded my album that I'm releasing, Miles Mumford, said, you know, tagged me in it 
and she wrote this comment it was like um obviously i would love zanny to do it but like she would be way too busy she wouldn't want to do it you know <laughs> like why would she want to work with me and i was just reading it like what the shit um i was like of course Geraldine, i'd love to be in your show as it turned out there was only one show that i couldn't do that was awesome of her to be flexible with that so that would have been really difficult because you know it's a comedy show it's scripted and yeah. there's music and she was still like no i still want you to be involved even though you can't make this one show like i'm quite inspired and in awe of geraldine i think that she is an incredible storyteller singer like she's got a multiplicity of talents and i've i've seen her do stuff for a long time like she used to do the um asylum seeker resource center gigs and that's where i first met her casey bonetto and stuff and so she'd always be there she was inspiring as well as like from the perspective of being a strong woman i wanted to be a part of that i wanted to do what i could to help her to you know it's just a nice feeling to go i can i can help someone like her by being a part of this and she is amazing to work with too like she, even though it was coming together like you know quite she was like don't worry just trust me i've got it it's going to come together and like i never felt like what are we doing what's happening i don't know what you want like she just was so organized in simple terms it may not be simple what did she give zanny I love seeing someone's idea come to life. And like when I feel like it's there's a space to do so, I am very vocal about what I think about a project. Like I'll go, I don't know if that makes sense or what I don't know why you do that. And you know Geraldine would off open that space up and just to see someone I think it was an inspiration thing. I was just like, yeah, that's how you you put something together. That's how you put on a show and you know, she works very independently most of the time and that's that's tough, but she works really hard. Mm. You're also the creative mind, but an all-female backing band. A few years ago, I was invited to perform for a, a concert that was celebrating women in music, female singer-songwriters. Actually, first I was like, uh, why are you asking me? Because <laughs> I'd never really called myself a singer-songwriter. You know, yeah. I'm a violinist and I sing my own songs. They were putting women to the front, which yeah. is great. great. Performing songs, their own original compositions, That's possibly. Right. yeah. Right, so you're in. Great, yeah. So I was like, absolutely, I'd love to do this. Anyway, I was performing and there were these three other women, Ali Bada, Sophie Coe, um, Leah Senior. Got up to play and I just remember at a point I was looking back at the band and it's like wouldn't it be better if this event had female musicians in the backing band because they were all guys great players great guys but they had kind of put the thing together and I was like well like we need females in music we need more women in music but not just as the singers songwriters like we need to make sure we're acknowledging the female instrumentalists Mm -hmm. as well so I was like, oh, I wish someone would do that. Then I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. Oh, okay, cool. Let's make this happen. So I was like, great. What I want to do, and my original idea was to have all-female band and only male singer-songwriters. Wouldn't that be really cool if these guys could look back at their band and it was all women? But I'm going to need some high-profile names. 
I don't think I can do this by myself. And I haven't been very good in the past for asking for favours. I try not to do it because mm. I don't want to be annoying. But anyway, I rang Kenny, who uh, is a producer at Renegade, who did the Rockwitz shows. Yep. I called Kenny and I was like, look, I've got this idea. Could, do you want to help me? I was thinking of putting it on at Bennett's Lane, which is this small jazz club in the city. It's not open anymore, but it was back then. So Kenny was like, love it. Great idea. Give it, leave it with me. I'll get back to you. And I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, called me. Turns out Kenny had gone to the art centre, pitched this idea, and he had organised a date at Hamer Hall. <laughs> like the biggest concert hall in Melbourne. And I was like, oh, Kenny, I don't know. <laughs> Just my little idea. And he's like, nah, we're going to make it happen. So I started calling people. Like I called Tim. And he was like, I'd love to be involved. I'd love to support you, Zanny. I called Harry Angus from the Cat Empire. And it was amazing that I could call these people that I had worked with and that they were into it. Mm. And we had Jen Cloer, Fraser A. Gorman, Kate Sobrano, Kate Miller-Heidke, Davey Lane, Steve Kilby. Now, these are no small fries. No, these uh, are Of course, Kilby names. there, of Kilby Kennedy, and of course, the church. Yeah. So I was shitting myself essentially right Tex Perkins as well so I took it upon myself to put together this 14 piece all female band so four, four piece horn section string quartet and 14 then 14 piece. piece female band and then I had 20 songs that I had to arrange for a 14 piece band and I've never arranged for this kind of band before like I have never been so stressed in my life I was having a panic attack because I was having a panic attack <laughs> And I put this thing together and it went incredibly well. Um, it was called Stand By A Woman and it went so well that I decided to make this a permanent collective and I called it Spire Ensemble because we did our first gig at the Art Centre which has the Spire and it stands for Sound and Performance Inspiring Recognition and Equality. These women now want to be a part of this collective in doing the arranging. So I don't want it to be a hierarchical thing where I'm doing all the direction. The women in the group do arranging as well. So we've done quite a few gigs now. You know, the beautiful thing is that from there, like the guitarist in the band now works with Kate Sobrano. Other girls in the in the show have, like the drummer went on and has played with Jess Ribeiro, who we did a show with. So from this... And this was my main objective, that the big name artists would see these women instrumentalists and employ them. The artists that you'd organised to be at the front, mm-hmm. male and some female, yes. turned around to an all-female backing unit yep. and went, I want you. That's right. Because a lot of the time the reason that women don't get the gig is because these artists don't, don't know they exist. But they do exist. So you just got to create a forum for that to happen. And since then... I feel like it's done that. And so, yeah, I extend, expanded it to make it, no, not just men singing at the front, mm. also women, because women need to see that too. Women need to employ women as well. It's not just men that need to employ women in their bands. We're currently speaking to Zania. Her latest release that you can get, which is also available on vinyl, is called Three. Mm-hmm. It's the third one, as we've mentioned previously in this chat, that's different than the other two. Mm-hmm. But what's the first ingredient for you when it comes to actually putting some music together? Well, I think that it's important to know that all the recording projects I've done, I haven't had a lot of money. So money 
means that you're restricted in kind of how you can approach the project. So unlike composing or gigging, you can practice it, you can try new things. Recording, you have to pay up and you go in and you just hope for the best. I've never been in a situation, like in a position where I can go into a studio and go, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to write? Am I going to write first? I'm going to do this. And I try different things every time. I also believe in the spontaneity of music and I always get demoitis. So often I'll like record something at home and I'll go, yep, this is what I want to record just on my phone, something shitty. And I love that version. And then I go and record it and it's nothing like it. I haven't got a trusted, like tried and true way of going into the studio. In fact, I'm not a massive fan of going into the studio. I prefer to play live. And I don't think that I've nailed how to go into the studio. I don't think I've nailed any part of it. I've worked with lots of amazing people and they've all done an incredible job, but I still haven't ever heard back what I want to hear back until three. What is three? Three is a release that I didn't plan on making. I didn't plan on it being like this, but saying yes to more collaborations and I had been trying all these different EPs and different types of music and then I thought, look, just as a bit of fun, I'm going to go into the studio by myself and I'm going to record me just improvising with my loop station. I know that this is just ridiculous because it's something that comes very naturally to me and if it's coming too easy to me then you know it's not worth doing but I guess I was like trying to find music that I really loved out there and I wasn't finding it and what I wanted was like violin cool grooves sounds looping which comes direct (laughs) to what I was going to say to you before even if something does come easy to you isn't there some value in that expression being shared to the world for the world to do what they want with it that's right that's what I had not thought of. And like Where I was... Where was your mother when you needed her? <laughs> well, mum, mum has been trying to tell me this for years. She's like, ah. And when I came out with it, she's like, oh my God. Because like I'd been listening to Andrew Bird. I'd been listening to Zoe Keating and I loved all it, but it just wasn't what I really wanted to hear, which was just violin, just awesome, just energetic, free lots of bowing, lots of notes, all that stuff that I do all the time. And I just thought, well, I, I should just record it because people keep going, hey, do you have anything that has this on it? And I was playing heaps of solo shows and doing my songs and then popping in a made-up instrumental in the middle and they're like, what's that instrumental? And I'm like, I don't have a recording of that. So I started thinking about this recording. I booked it in and I thought, I better write some stuff down. Like I've got to prepare for this. Anyway, I was getting closer and closer and I just was having no inspiration, plan anything. And it was stressing me out. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to plan anything. I'm just going to go in the studio and I'm just going to make everything up. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go in, spend two hours playing whatever I think. And I'm going to get it filmed. Hmm. It's all there in case it turns out all right. So I went in. A little bit of optimism. Yeah. I was like, I went in and I had my friend come along and film it. I had all my setup and I turned the lights off. And then for like two hours, I just played. 
I just made stuff up. And it was so fun. It just gave me everything that I, I wanted out of music. So music was fun. Music was and fun. And a little while ago, you gave it up because it suddenly become very dark. Yes, that's right. Time equals... Yeah, that's right. I kind of had to go through all of that to get to this point. And then I sat with Miles and we mixed it and it was that was fun. And usually, like I said, I don't like going in the studio because I'm like, oh, so sterile. And known Miles since uni days. He was working as an engineer at VCA for a little bit. He was actually the one who said to me, why do Melbourne musicians leave and go overseas? Right. So he's always been around in my career and I hadn't really done very much with him. I thought he'd do a really good job because he just opened up his studios, Rolling Stock Recording Rooms in Collingwood. So... I listened back and I was like, oh, I love this. This is this is great. Listen to that. I can't believe I did that. Because when I improvise and make stuff up, I kind of go into a bit of a... I get very absorbed in the music and it's a state for me. I And then I come out and I'm like, oh, I don't know what happened. And then I listen back and I go, oh, that's cool. was like, great, done. And I gave a copy to mum and dad and they were just like so emotional. <laughs> I'm like, this is, this is who you are, Zanny, they were saying. This is who you are. This is what you should do. And I was still so uncertain about it. But then I thought, this is something that I really love, even after I've recorded it. You know, no demo artist because I hadn't done it before. Mm. And I thought, I'm going to put this one on vinyl. I'd been waiting to put something that I'd done on vinyl, but I didn't want to put something I wasn't super happy with. And this I was. What was in your mind as you were playing this? Nothing. I was just playing. I had no pressure because I hadn't told anyone I was going to do this. I was only in there for a day, so I wasn't going to break the bank. There was just no pressure on me. I hadn't written anything. I was just completely free. I got to feel the feeling that I feel when I perform on stage, and that's a feeling that I love. This has been released on vinyl. Very excited for that. Where is the vinyl connection? Where's the warmth for vinyl come from? The first vinyl, I bought a vinyl player when vinyl was starting to come back in and was like, okay, I'm going to go and be a vinyl collector now. And the first one that I bought was Joni Mitchell Live. The song that I wish I'd written is A Case of You. I didn't hear Joni Mitchell's version first. I heard Diana Krall's version first and I loved it. I really loved it. A lot of people would be like, oh, Zanny, you can't say that, but I don't care. I loved that version. And then I heard Joni Mitchell's recorded version and I didn't like it. Anyway, I bought this vinyl and it was her doing that song live. And, oh, my God, it was so beautiful, but made even more beautiful because I just bought new speakers. It was on vinyl. It was from back in the day when vinyl was, like, pressed really well. So from there, I was like, vinyl is really special. I didn't want to just put anything on it. Like I thought when I put something on vinyl, I want to put something that means a lot to me that I'm really proud of. And I don't know if I'll put anything on vinyl again. I just wanted this one one thing. This album three is extremely, as we're hearing just from the tone, very important to you. Mm. I was really worried because I think that the music that I make it's not a standard type of music. So for an engineer, they can't just do all the tried and true stuff. They have to think about things differently. Same with the mastering engineer. Same with the people who are cutting the vinyl because there's so much dynamic in it. So when I got it, 
it started feeding back and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, there were heaps of crackles. I was like, this is not, this is not sounding good. I can't put this out. I can't put this out. Anyway, turns out that I had my speakers to close the thing and all this stuff. And I was like, oh. so that was my first feeling. <laughs> and then I was just like, this is the beginning. I can't believe it's taken me long to get here, but this is the beginning now for me that I have decided I haven't found my voice like I thought that I was looking for my voice I haven't found it I've just gotten out of the way and let myself speak easy way as well it's so it was so easy I don't know where I got this idea that I have it has to be hard like when I did my first solo show I tried these songs out to see how they went and I was like is anyone even liking this I don't know if anyone's liking this and afterwards like even mum and dad were they've been to every gig that I do and they were like that was great it was you it's like oh that's all I need to do just be myself what's the next decade looking like for Zenia? I want to give this solo violin thing a big chance and I think one thing that can kill a project is when you forget about the artistry and so my approach with this has been to always just think about that first and foremost so I want it to be fun the whole time I want it to feel good and natural and not push it to be anything else so I don't have necessarily a plan for it whereas everything else I've always had a plan Hmm. this one I'm just like let's see what happens do you sense by not having a plan are you confident within yourself and I I feel like you, you may well be but I don't want to put words in your mouth that now that you've got this record called Three, you've got your work, you've got a body of work on a record, that, that you know what you are and who you are as a performer, that you'll be able to get through some other things because of that. Yeah. And I kind of made a deal with myself that rather than... Because I often take on a lot of big projects and they're challenging and new and stressful. Mm. And then I don't take on other projects that are easy and fun. So mm. now I've decided there Bit has to be balance. Yeah, yeah, that I have to, if I'm going to take on a hard thing, I have to take on an easy thing. Because by doing that, you'll have a representation of, let's not call it easy if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. But of an achievement. Yeah. That's actually you, that is an expression of you. Yeah. It just happens that expression is easy because you're talented. Well, it's just, it's me it's speaking. It's embracing your it's talent. Me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I've also opened up my career like doing the um, Spire project I'm doing a lot more music direction I'm doing writing music for theatre now (laughs) I've also got the twocks that I do then I've got my solo thing and then recently I've just been I went back to uni and did a bit of study I studied Indigenous studies and I found my love for writing again and so I feel like I'm in a place where the next decade is just going to be exciting because I'll have a balance of stuff that I love. Gone back to study to do Indigenous studies. Mm-hmm. Missy Higgins gave up music to do Indigenous studies. Mm. So I did my course for 12 weeks. I just finished. It was full-time study while also doing full-time music. So it was Easy. super intense time and I think that I'm now done with study. But I had wanted to do Indigenous studies for a long time but... Um, where I was studying, you need to be have 100% attendance or something like that. So I couldn't be away on tour at all. And this was the first block of time in a long time that I've had to do it. Mm. And I went to do it to educate myself because in the Australian curriculum, when it talks about Australian history, what we get taught is actually completely wrong. 
And I knew this, but what I didn't know is how wrong it was. You can't know what you don't know until you go and do it. And But did you feel there was a lie in your mind that there was some mistruths that needed to be yes, answered? Yes, yes, yes. I knew that for sure. I was like, you know, you learn some things and you, you do your own research and reading. And so I went and I studied it and there's so much more to learn. But the thing that really struck me is that when I'm doing these things like curating all female bands, I I learned to really critique white stream feminism as well. And having been a feminist for a long time, I thought that feminism was this amazing thing that had nothing wrong with it, you know. And um, then I kind of learned how it's excluded people too. So when I put on these events, I've got to really make sure that I have knowledge about what my role is in putting together these events so now I have to like think about that and I want to embrace that and I want to do it in a responsible way so that if I do curate an event and there are indigenous women who I'm having involved that I am doing that responsibly and am sensitive to what I'm supposed to do or how to learn or how to listen and the biggest thing I learned is how to have dialogue with people rather than have debates and that's something that I think is really important as well going forward, doing music direction, doing creative things. I went into this course and I just listened and it was incredible. It was something I really needed to do because as you know, a white female, I've gone through life holding guilt, holding shame, all these really non-useful feelings and now I feel like the feelings are more of responsibility, listening, dialogue, engaging, trying, failing, but improving. And I think that's what Australia needs. Like we could be an incredible country if we weren't so much in denial about things that are part of our history. It was the best thing that I've done doing that course. Is it going to influence release number four of this story? Like I thought it might. Hmm. But no, I think it's something different. It's something for my own growth and being a responsible citizen rather than something that I'm going to use hmm. for my music. You'll educate the performer but not the performance. That's right, yeah. On that note. Yeah. Zanny, absolute pleasure. Oh, so good. Thanks for having me. So good to chat. Zani Kolak in conversation. They can be found online at zarnikolak.com. The vinyl of three can be found there too. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 